This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Homeland Security Department, by order of the Biden administration, is reportedly shifting resources to the challenge of what the administration calls violent domestic extremism. For a little perspective on this, we turn to an expert on cyber warfare, surveillance, terrorism, and whistleblowers, our Street Institute senior fellow, Paul Rosenzweig. Paul, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Domestic terrorism and domestic extremism, this is in some sense not a new phenomenon at all, is it? Doesn't it kind of in some sense go back to the founding of the republic? Well, it certainly is the case that American history is filled with the story of Americans acting violently in opposition to what they see as oppression. I mean, the first of those would obviously be, you know, the Boston Tea Party, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion under George Washington. I guess the question that's kind of hard to discern or answer is in service of what? Violence in service of liberty as the Tea Party or you know, the greatest act of domestic terrorism or violence was probably the Civil War. And that was violence in service of slavery and thus is remembered rather poorly in comparison to, say, the Boston Tea Party. Sure. So I'm imagining the administration is referring to things more like the Timothy McVeigh phenomenon or more recently the violence that happened at the Capitol. So the question is, what does DHS need to do that it's not doing? Because we've got the FBI, we've got DHS that have been, in theory, on top of these things as part of their mission. Well, in theory, I think that's true. I think there's two parts to what the Biden administration is suggesting that are kind of new or different or perhaps going back to old. The first is that quite clearly during the last administration, uh, resources and focus were shifted away from the domestic terrorism mission. Uh, Elizabeth Neumann, who was the assistant secretary for counterterrorism, has testified about that in front of Congress about how the DHS intelligence and prevention mission against domestic terrorist activity was diminished in importance as resources were transitioned to other priorities. And that's not making necessarily a political statement, though obviously there's some sense in which that was a politically motivated change, but rather it's simply a declaration of of fact that the resources moved. And so one of the things that the Biden administration is clearly doing is reorienting the focus of DHS intelligence gathering to more aggressively include an examination of domestic terror activity. And so that's one thing. The other is that I think it's fair to say that even before the last administration, in the Obama administration and in the Bush administration before that, there were certain flavors of domestic terrorism that DHS stayed away from assessing, mostly because they were near adjacent to political activity. There's a real sense in which existing domestic terror activity has a near adjacency with a political party and opposition to government and things like that. Think of Amon Bundy, the rancher out west who basically could be considered a a domestic terrorist, but is also considered a political hero. And you get a sense of why focusing on domestic terrorism is harder for DHS than, say, focusing on foreign terrorism, where the equities of First Amendment considerations and political activity are not nearly as salient. And one of the things that I take from the information coming out of the Biden administration is that they're going to attempt to get past that reluctance and uh, reorient 
both DHS and, frankly, probably FBI and DOJ resources as well, towards more aggressively looking at these near-adjacent groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, who are both quasi-political and quasi-violent. And we could throw Antifa in there also, I suppose. I suppose that's true, yes. Certainly the Portland events suggest some need for that, though there there were there was less um, reluctance, I think, to add resources to that part of the domestic mission in the last administration. But yes, I think that's fair. We're speaking with Paul Rosenzweig. He's senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So then the challenge is to go after groups that do pose a actual danger, but not yet devolve into a mirror image of the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, where it wasn't aligned with Republican types of groups, or closely adjacent, I should say. In those days, it was aligned with or closely adjacent to the Democratic Party. You really don't want it going either way, then. That seems to be their main challenge. Well, I think that that's going to be an immense challenge. We've learned a lot in the last 20 years about how to combat terrorism. We look at communications amongst terrorist group members. We look at their finances. We look at their travel. All of these are lessons that we are applying globally against al-Qaeda and ISIS and all of the various offshoots. If you translate that sort of investigative activity to the domestic space, it's pretty easy to see how some of the tools and some of the activities would run the risk of trenching upon protected speech and the rights of American citizens. And we have had an inconsistent experience, I think that's fair to say, with the success of our ability to conduct audit and oversight of our intelligence and law enforcement communities in ways that allow them to address the real threats of violence from terrorist groups or domestic violent groups, while at the same time not wandering into the political sphere. You mentioned Hoover and the FBI. Obviously, there's the famous Church Commission reports on CIA activities. And we built an entire oversight system in the aftermath of those in the 1970s. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned in the last five or seven years is that that oversight system of congressional review in particular has sort of atrophied that where we thought that legislative branches would act as a check on executive branches, we have come to see that the legislative branch of the same party as a president is perhaps a little more reluctant than it might be to examine the conduct of its own party president. And likewise, we've seen the diminution of the authority of inspectors general who were fired left and right in the last few years. So it's a real challenge to find the right balance and both empower law enforcement and DHS to examine domestic activity that we want them to examine because it's dangerous, like the January 6th riots and insurrection at the Capitol, while refraining from using those same powers to tamp down on simple political dissent or opposition. It's not readily answerable. There's no bright line rule. you got to do the best you can with it. Right. And as we learned in that church era, I remember those hearings, actually, is that with good oversight that is refreshed and exercised regularly, law enforcement actually functions better when it's in a complex of oversight and rules-based activity than when kind of ignored and left alone. I think that's absolutely right. Most good law enforcement officers, most good intelligence analysts would tell you that they actually value clarity about rules. What they hate most is ambiguity, right? Not knowing 
whether or not what they're doing is okay. Because when that happens, they stay far back from the edge because their incentives are, frankly, mostly bureaucratic, mostly derived from administrative restrictions and things like that. So they want clear rules that empower them to act when they should and that tell them what not to do when they shouldn't. And we've kind of gotten away from that a lot. And especially in the congressional oversight sphere, we have conducted much less oversight than we would like or I think we would like as a society. And I say that with respect to both parties and both flavors of president. So basically then the challenge for this administration or any administration is while it's easy to enact these types of strategies because the technologies are so much more able even than J. Edgar Hoover or people during the Church Commission and the CIA could have envisioned that we have now, that if anything, the oversight and regulatory structure surrounding it is more important than ever. I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, technology is fundamentally neutral, right? You can use it for good purposes or for bad purposes. It is also fundamentally impossible to stop. The technology of surveillance, of facial recognition, biometrics, all of that is going to run forward whether we want it to or not. Even if we could miraculously stop it completely in the United States, which we can't, but if we could, it would nonetheless move forward in China, in Europe, in Russia, in Brazil. And so we have to come to grips with how to manage technological change that empowers intrusiveness without kind of losing our democratic soul, small d democratic soul, if you will. And that is really not easy, right? It's especially not easy in a partisan environment where rather than being interested in resolving that almost existential conundrum about democratic governance, the party members are, are more interested in fighting with each other and, and winning re-election. I contrast this all, for example, with the years of hearings that went on in Congress that eventually resulted in Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control Act, which is essentially the law that governs wiretap authority. Congress, you know, back then recognized that the technology of wiretapping was running far faster than policy was and was essentially limitless in its ability at that time to empower the surveillance of telecommunications between American citizens. And they had hearing upon hearing upon hearing. They had disagreements about what was the best and right result. But in the end, they did the people's business and developed a relatively comprehensive set of laws that have since been updated many times. But nonetheless, the original development was extraordinary in its bipartisan agreement that it was necessary. And we've seen nothing like that in the last few years with respect to new technologies of facial recognition, artificial intelligence analysis, big data aggregation. Nothing like that has happened in the last few years in Congress, which is a shame. All right. So, Congress, you have heard. Paul Rosenzweig is Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. That was delightful. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, 
what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that 
call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group Affinity Insurance world for um, three decades. I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.